0: Hello everyone, I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries. This is another episode of our Insight into Isaiah. If you've been joining us, we're winding down now, coming to the final chapters. In fact, in this program, we are in chapter 65. There's only one more chapter after this. uh, And uh, I think very soon, we're going to be able to bring this to a conclusion. Uh, Before I uh, get into the actual teaching, I want to do a setup here on these final two chapters. Isaiah has written this book as i've shared with you a couple of times before and this last part has been this giant sermon he he's uh, uh, used his hermeneutics and and uh, and and uh, has given us this instruction uh, that covers everything from the coming of the Messiah to do the work of redemption to the coming of the Messiah to do the work of restoration the word about the judgment that will be coming he's talked about the gathering of the Saints that will be taking place at the end of the age the final redemption and he's talked about the new kingdom the millennial kingdom when the Messiah is ruling and reigning he's touched on all of those things and so what he's going to do here at the end of his book. He's going to be summarizing those things. These are the things I really was telling you. Um, One time I heard that the, the best way to teach is a uh, three-point teaching, which says, uh, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And whether you realize it or not, Isaiah kind of followed that. And so we're coming down to the final point of he's going to kind of remind us of things he's already said before. And there's a couple of instances I'm going to point that out, where he had already shared that with us, and he's summarizing and bringing it to a conclusion. But we are in the midst of chapter 65, where he's been talking about going back and forth, God. God's mercy on the one hand, God's rebellious people on the other. The rebellious people will not be successful. Uh, those that are humble and turn to the Lord, they will be successful. He's coming, giving us this kind of a, a balanced picture here of how things are going to ultimately end up. And in the midst of that discussion, he's now going to speak a positive word. These are the good things that are becoming, and that's where we're at at the moment. Isaiah chapter 65, beginning in verse 8, is, says thus says the Lord as the new wine is found in the cluster and says do not destroy it for there's benefit in it so I will act on behalf of my servants in order not to destroy all of them the it's both the righteous and the unrighteous that is present it's the wheat and the tares, and the Lord is saying I'm not going to destroy the wheat You know, I may judge the tares and the weeds. I can see the righteous in the midst of the unrighteous. I can distinguish between them. I'm going to do good to the righteous, but not necessarily to the unrighteous. Verse 9. And I will bring forth the offspring from Jacob and an heir of my mountain from Judah. And even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. I want to examine that verse just a little bit, because there were three statements that were made there. I will bring the offspring from Jacob. Okay, that would be the native born. Native born of that. And the heir, and an heir of my mountains from Judah... Obviously, that is the tribe of Judah in particular. And he was the prophet to the house of Judah, so he's speaking it very directly to him. And then he says, and even my chosen ones shall inherit it. Now, a lot of uh, teachers would go say, well, that's, that's Israel, that's Judah, and so is the Jews. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, yes, uh, all of the descendants, the native born of Jacob... Yes, all of those associated with Jerusalem, those that are in the land, and then my chosen ones shall inherit it. And we are the chosen people. God chooses us in our redemption. When we receive the redemption of the Messiah, we are chosen by God to receive eternal life and forgiveness, and we are grafted in. We are chosen of the Father, and that's what's making reference to. That includes all believers throughout the world. And so he's announcing that this is, what, this, is the, this is this group that's scattered in the world that's going to be preserved and brought out of the world in the midst of the world being judged, even in the nations, even his chosen servants all over the world. As he's referring to, verse 10. And Sharon shall be a pasture land for flocks, and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds for my people, uh, for my people who seek me. Sharon is up uh, in the upper part of Israel, toward uh, just off the Mediterranean coast. The valley of Achor is over into the eastern part of of uh, just east of Jerusalem uh, in that area as the mountains slope down so he's talking about either side of the mountains he's talking about those to the west of the mountains those to the east of the mountains that there will be peace for the whole land verse 11 but you who forsake the lord who forget my holy mountain who set a table for fortune they're just after money who fill cups mixed with with mixed wine for destiny. In other words, they're determining their destiny instead of letting the Lord determine their destiny. If you determine your own destiny, you're the benefactor of whatever that is. And usually if you, a man sets his own destiny for it, it usually doesn't work out. We do know that if we let the Lord set the destiny for us, it always works out. And so they set their own destiny, and they're going to suffer those consequences. Verse 12, I will destine to you for the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear, and you did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. I want to just, for a moment, I want to wax philosophical. You know, I am, uh, have done enough living uh, in this world to the point where I can step back and not only see my own life experience, but then I've been an observer of the life experience of many other people. And I have a sense of where I'm at and what forebodes into the future for me. And I've taken into account the sovereign will of God, sometimes the randomness of life. I've, I've, I've pulled all of those elements together. And I've come away with this conclusion, and a little bit like Solomon. And, and in my heart, it's settled with me that if you do not follow the path of the Lord in your life... When you get to the end of your life, you're going to suddenly realize that you wasted it, that your life is worthless, that there, you know, I don't care what the accolades of men are. I don't care what your college degree is. I don't care you know other awards you got from other men and so forth. You're going to find that it's all vanity, it's worthless. The only thing that you're going to find that has value is the only value there is, is in the Lord. He's the one who's been there from the beginning. He's the one that's going to be there in the future. And so any value that you're going to have, any sort of, um, whether it be accolade, even, even um, observation about you, even the memory of you is going to be known by him. And he's the one who can carry your life into the future. He's the definition of your life into the future. Now, if you've taken a path where you didn't have him to be a part of your life, you did not seek him, you didn't follow what he said, you didn't pay it, you wouldn't listen to him and so forth, I'm telling you, when you get down to the end, and by the way, we're all going to get to the end, you got nothing. Um, Which is, is, it's utterly fascinating that that's what this life is. But it's true. That's what it is. We're mortals. We're temporary creatures. We're borrowing some of the created elements of when God made the heavens and the earth. And pretty soon, you know, one of these days, you're going to end up giving all those minerals and chemicals back to the earth now where 's the rest of you going to be, and what what are you going to what 's going to be the essence or the value of you or whatever happened to you only in the Lord? will you have it only in the lord uh, and we 're not just shifting into nothingness you 're going to give an account and you 're going to have to Come to terms with what you accomplished, what you didn't accomplish, who you knew, who you didn't know. And uh, standing up and saying, well, I was well-liked by other men who were in the same boat with me. It is not going to be worth a thing. All right. Um, uh, verse 12. I will destine you for the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. You did not, You did evil in my sight and chose that which I did not delight. Now, God knows about it, and if it wasn't a delight to God, as you're slipping into eternity with God, how do you think that's going to work out for you? If he does not delight in you, I wouldn't want to be in those shoes, and because it is his universe, it is his kingdom, he is the God, we're just the man part, he's immortal, we're mortals. Uh, And we don't have any say, quite honestly. We just get the benefits of him, or in this case, the judgments uh, from him as well. Now, he's going to make the contrast again. Okay? This is where they're at that didn't choose the Lord. Verse 13, therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you shall cry out with a heavy heart, and you shall wail with a broken spirit. The contrast is just amazing. Those that serve the Lord, the ultimate end for them is joy. The things they need. Uh, The others who did not choose the Lord, they're going to have a problem. Um, When I have read this verse of the past, and I've considered the prophecy of the Great Tribulation, we may see this dramatically displayed in those days, where those that are escaping with the Lord in the days of the Great Tribulation, they will eat, they will drink, and they will rejoice when a whole lot of other people in the world... Have no food, have nothing to drink, and it's terrible. It's terrible for them and their communities. Uh, In recent days, we've seen the country of Venezuela and the lack of water, the lack of food, the the lack of the basic things the community needs. It has to be terrible there. I mean, just utterly scary and terrible uh, to be in that place. And this is a modern nation, and it's only taken them this long to go down that far. I don't know if you know that, but I think Venezuela was like the fourth richest nation in the world back some time ago. The fourth richest nation. Um, They weren't socialists then. They were a democracy. But since they became a socialist nation, down the tubes. Um, And and, but they also turned away from the Lord, uh, dramatically turned away from the Lord. Socialism doesn't leave room for God. Socialism pushes God out. I don't know if you know that or not. So does communism. Only democracy allows God to be a part of things. And I'm not saying that democracy is better than socialism. I'm saying when a nation allows God to be part of their life, it's a whole lot better than not God having in their life. Those that follow the Lord eat and drink. <laughs> Those that don't follow the Lord are thirsty and hungry. That's the way it, it comes out. All right, verse 15. And you will leave your name for a curse uh, to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, that my servants shall be called by another name. The comparison. You, you will lose your name, but my servants get a new name. You know. And we've talked a little bit about the destiny of what a name means and how someone gives you a name. You don't really pick a name for yourself. If you pick a name for yourself, it usually leads to um, destruction. By the way, uh, this is just an observation on my part. We have people in the world who choose their names. Uh, For example, uh, a lot of these musicians um, and a lot of uh, gang members They'll pick a new name for themselves, and they'll give themselves a destiny, basically, of death and destruction. Instead of having a destiny of the name that was given to them in the Lord. Uh, And we see examples of that all the time. It will be good when we get our new name from the Lord. It will be definitely good for us. Verse 16, because he who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in, it, in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying." No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed." And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They also shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit, and they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat, for as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants as with them. And it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. Here he is describing the new heaven and new earth. He's describing the kingdom. So, maybe you didn't know this, but the scripture talks about in the messianic kingdom, there is going to be a catastrophic restructuring of the surface of the earth. When the Messiah comes back and the day of the Lord is executed, one of the things that's going to happen on the earth is not only judgment by fire, but by great upheaval on the surface of the earth. In fact, the scripture alludes to in the book of Revelation that when it's all said and done, the sea will be no more. Now, right now in the earth that we have, on the crust, the surface of the earth, it's about 30% land and about 70% water. There's a very good possibility that when the Messiah returns here, that's going to be reversed that the the surface water may be some 30%, and the vast majority of the land will be the crust of the earth. In fact, the scripture talks about in the Millennial Kingdom that the earth is a very broad plain, that there's a great surface to it that isn't taken up by mountains and other structures. It says the chief of mountains in the world in that day is going to be Jerusalem. There will be a great mountain in Jerusalem, but it's surface land all around the world uh, for the remaining parts. And we're going to live there, and we're going to build and work there and grow things there, and we're going to prosper and continue um, Obviously, the animal kingdom is not going to prey on one another, and if you remember that last verse in verse 25 about the wolf and the lamb and so forth, that is a repeat. That's him summarizing what he gave to us in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, he talked about the Messiah having all seven spirits of God. That's the reason why he'll rule and reign in his kingdom so well. And that he quotes this characteristic that there will be peace. There will even be peace in the rest of the animal creation. And they, they won't prey on each other anymore. There won't be a danger from being around a, quote, wild animal. All the animals will be at peace. And it says it even goes on to say that a child will play at the hole of a poisonous snake, and there will be no concern, you know, for it. I'm sure we'll have to yell at the kid and say, "Leave the snake alone." But there will be no danger to the child or to the serpent in those days. Now, uh, (coughs) pardon me. (coughs) There's a whole lot of. interesting pictures in here one of them has to do with length of days and he makes reference to he talks about a child uh, the, the age of a child versus the age of a uh, older man he says that you and i are going to outlive trees did you know trees live for hundreds of years we will outlive trees you know, and it says that things that we made, we'll use them and we'll outlive them to where they fall apart and we'll have to make another one. We'll outlive uh, some of the stuff. So we build a structure a house, maybe we'll outlive the house and we'll build another one. Uh, but one particular verse catches a lot of people's of attention on the subject of the Millennial Kingdom. And let me repeat to it again. It's verse 20, and it says, No longer will there be in an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 shall be thought accursed. And a lot of people read that verse not realizing there's a metaphor going on about length of days. And they think it's a literal statement about uh, you can die after 100 years in the millennial kingdom. And that there's a possibility of death. In the millennial kingdom no there is not no this is a metaphor it's trying to get you to understand that if you make it to the millennial kingdom you're going to continue to grow be healthy be well and you're going to keep going keep going keep going until the lord says enough of the millennial kingdom now when adam and eve were first created was there a finite time that they were going to live the answer is no. When God created Adam and Eve, he was fully intending they were going to live there forever and, and keep the garden and do what he was doing. It's only when sin and death was introduced that death came in, and that's what caused the termination of their, their lives as mortals. And if we put on immortality, if I have a new body that is no longer subject to the diseases that cause my death. And God has come back as creator and cleaned up the disruption in the cosmos, in the entire creation, and he's put us back into a garden environment like he, when he built the Garden of Eden, and we have a whole whole new world and a new heavens, and we have all that new, then that means that we're going to live. In fact, the promise to us as believers of Yeshua is the promise of no second death. It's appointed unto man to only die once, and then the judgment. And once the judgment is, it either decides that you are dead forever, or you are alive forever. It is the gift of eternal life. We have received, as believers of Israel, we've received the gift of eternal life. This verse does not negate those promises. This verse is a metaphoric expression trying to explain that people are going to outlast. Now, if a person were to die at 100 years of age, if, that's the hypothetical, then everybody would say, well, they're accursed. You're not going to be accursed in the kingdom, so you're not going to be dying. He's just trying to give the metaphor that we're going to live for a long time. I have always uh, jokingly said this, but I think there's some reality to it. When I get to the kingdom, <clears throat> I'm hoping that he gives me the new body, and I'm about, oh, 30, a grown man, still got my muscles, uh, still got zeal at the peak you know, of my health, uh, don't have any chronic issues, just, um, you know, I used to play baseball, and I used to play flag football, and I went scuba diving and I played racquetball and I did, and, and I fathered children, and I was handsome, all of it back then. And I'm hoping that's what we get again. And that's where I'm going to be for a long, long, long time. I can only imagine how much fun it's going to be. That nothing will be constrained from me. If I want to go out, well, let's build a house. I got the energy to do it, um, and 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 to live and enjoy uh, the kingdom. And uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I remember in my younger days, in my uh, late 20s and early 30s, and so forth, that it was a very happy time for me. I got to do a lot of wonderful things, and I enjoyed my life, and and uh, fathered my children, and it was it was terrific. Uh, And so anyways, I always share with people that when I get to the kingdom and I've got this great life, I'm going to spend, oh, the first 500 years of the kingdom, I'm going to be consciously going around and meeting all my ancestors that are there in the kingdom. I want to go back and I want to spend some time with my maternal grandfather and my grandmother. I want to get to know my Judah fathers. Uh, there and so forth. I want to go all the way back where I can sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and spend some time with them and get to know them really well. Then in the second 500 years, because of there's no end to the increase and because there's so many children and so forth that have been born, I'm going to spend the next 500 years learning all about my new kids and their lives and, and what they're about. And And I can tell you right now, I'm going to have a ball. I'm looking forward to doing that. And every year, I'm going to grow tomatoes for the Lord. And um, now that may not sound like the most exciting thing for you in your life to do, but believe you me, in my heart of hearts, the joy, that that's one of the definitions of joy to me. And I know the Lord says it's going to be a time of rejoicing and there will be joy there. So I I kind of already know what's going to be happening a little bit. Now there might be even some better things than that, but I know my definition of joy, I know it will be there and present. And I'm don't I'm not going to have to worry about a heart attack cuz I overdid it or drowning or falling out of the sky or whatever. You know, it's all going to work out good and it's going to be good. All right, we have completed uh, chapter 65 now. We have one last chapter to review. And, again, this is a summary of what he's been saying all along. So let's jump in here. Let's see if we can complete this. Uh, Chapter 66, uh, beginning at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, Where then is a house that you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? The question is about the temple, the temple here in Jerusalem. Look, I created all these things. I live beyond the stars. You're going to make something for me here that I'm going to be impressed with? Is basically what he's saying here. Obviously, the answer is no. Whatever we do there would be a very humble effort. Verse 2, for my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Um, I once heard a teacher say, and I agree wholeheartedly with this statement, that the principle of humility as a believer to be humble is a foundation stone in your spiritual life. If you do not, in effect, master humility in your life, if humility isn't a mainstay of your life, you don't have the foundation for spiritually growing and spiritually increasing. Those that spiritually increase and grow to maturity, it's based on a foundation of humility. Now, the world is always telling us to stick up for yourself and you know and and be impressive and and be stronger than the other, and those are, in many cases, used as excuses not to be humble. Now, you can still be strong and be humble. But let me go ahead and tell you something: you've got to be humble first. You don't get strong, and then okay, I'll become humble. Now to be humble, you have to lay all the other stuff down first. And seek humility first. And then God builds on you and adds to you from that. You don't do it the other way around. Um, and it's interesting that the Lord, when he's talking about the, the comparison between the temple and Jerusalem. and And what he thinks of it. Versus what does he think of a believer who's humble in his heart, contrite. In In his spirit, and he trembles at the instructions of the Lord, in other words, he honors what the Lord says. The Lord says, "I choose that as far better than any temple that you could build in Jerusalem." in the messianic moment today, we have a number of teachers who are specializing in talking about the temple and teaching about the temple. Wonderful. Let me tell you what is the greater teaching is to teach individual messianic believers to humble up and tremble at his word and walk out before the Lord. That's even more impressive than if you have absolute expertise in the temple in Jerusalem. All right, verse 3. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like the one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like one who blesses an idol. And they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. So I will choose their punishments and I will bring on them what they dread. Because I called, but no one answered. I spoke, but they did not listen. And they did evil in my sight and chose that which I did not delight. Remember back in the previous chapter, he talks about this is not the delight. He's talking about religious people who are not seeking the delight of the Lord. They're going through the motions. They're even making sacrifices. But they're also committing abominations in their heart. Um, If you want a picture of how in the world did that happen, take a look at, in the days of Yeshua, the religious leadership of the Lamb. Those that controlled the temple service, those that did all those things... And they took Messiah King and they crucified him. Um, Do you think they had any righteousness whatsoever as religious leaders that would commend them to the Father at that point? Is there anything that you can say they did good The answer is no. And here's why. Because the abomination that they committed is so egregious that it has overshadowed the possibility of any other testimony they may have had. The same thing is given to us in Matthew chapter 7 by the Messiah. He says, there will be many in that day, talking about the judgment day, who will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, but they will not be part of the kingdom. And they will try to commend themselves with, well, didn't we do many good works in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we do all of those fine things in your name? And he will just simply say to him, depart from me, ye who are lawless, I never knew you. And that is an incredible contrast because we have a lot of people in the faith who think yeah well look i i know i'm not perfect with the lord i'm 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 not really following the lord i know it i i know i'm really not dedicated to the lord i'm not and i don't have a history of doing it but i've done some religious things i I've, I've been a nice guy and they get this idea that somehow or another they're going to walk in with their little special ticket and it's going to be punched i'm appealing for the mercy of god And God's going to counter that appeal for mercy of God and say, no, mercy applies to people I know. I don't know you. I don't know you at all. And they don't realize that that relationship with the Lord is eminently more important than any so-called good deeds they think they may have done. And that's going to be the determinant Do you, in fact, have the redemption of the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Does the Lord know you? Or are you going through the motions of being religious? Let's go ahead and speculate for just a moment. We're completely off the side of the truth. We know God is the ultimate judge. He will decide, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and take bets here. Caiaphas, high priest of Israel in the days that Yeshua was condemned, what do you think his chances are? What are the odds that I should give you that he's going to make it into the king? And by the way, you want to take that bet? Now, we don't know the truth as to whether he will be, God knows him and will extend mercy to him, or, or in fact, all we have is the evidence in front of us of his behavior. This is a religious man. He was regarded as a religious man by all the people of Israel in his day. People honored him because of his, quote, religious values. But can you hear the Messiah saying to him, I never knew you. I I can. I can see it. And if the former high priest of Israel isn't a lock-in, what makes you think you are in terms of this? Obviously, the Lord's judgment is superior to the, men of, the judgment of men, uh, and he's going to be making that decision. But he himself has just stated here, I don't care if you build a temple to me. Did you hear that? I don't care if you build a temple to me. I'm going to be looking to the one who's humble, contrite of spirit, and trembles at my word. That's the one that's going to get my attention. Um, Incredible spiritual point made here. And then he goes on to say that the, the, the offerings that are made by him, this is how I'll regard them. Yeah, but what about that lamb offering I made? Well, you as far as I'm concerned, you broke a dog's neck. It didn't even qualify as a lamb before me. You just it was a I treated that like it was a dog and you broke his neck. Well that's ugly. I mean, you know, those are ugly words. You know, and so forth for it. And again, this is a contrast to the negative. He's contrasting these things. Does the Lord want us to make gifts to the Lord? Of course he does. Does he want us to come and worship him, uh, you know, uh, according to the way he's called for us to worship? Of course he does. But if you're using that as an excuse for not knowing the Lord, for not having a relationship with him, it's not going to work. Verse 5 Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice from the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. The... We know for a fact that the religious leaders in the days of Yeshua, when they brought about the judgment to condemn Yeshua, they thought they were doing a good thing. They were convinced that they were right, and he's wrong. And we have a lot of people going around who think they're right about certain things. And by the way, they are not bashful or afraid to step up amongst fellow brethren, and because they slightly disagree with another brother, to condemn, to call for his crucifixion as well, to, to bring about slander and cursing on this person, and to go to other people and try to disturb as many people as they can not to cooperate and not be in fellowship, and they want to sow discord among brethren. The Lord says here, he has a judgment for him. That verse in Luke 6 that talks about those who suffer in the Lord, you know, where he says specifically, he said, you should leap for joy when others curse your name ostracize you spurn your name when they try to do harm you should leap for joy because such have they done to the prophets before and you get to have a prophet's reward because of that so what is the reward for the person who went around doing that to another person i always like to remind everybody in the faith That wonderful promise that Abraham got that it extends to his descendants, I will bless those that bless thee, I will curse those that curse thee. By the way, it applies to every one of our brethren. Now, if you want to bless a brother, then you get blessings. But if you curse a brother, guess what? You get the curses. And I think part of the reason why... In the faith over the years, and even in the modern messianic movement, the struggles that we face, and the reason why we don't see great success in the Lord of many blessings, is that we're still caught up in that old worldly system of putting people down and stepping over and on top of other people and to make ourselves better and, and, and so forth. It's tragic. The Lord is reiterating through Isaiah and the completion, He said, He's going to resolve all that. And he's encouraging us, don't worry about it when they hate you. Don't worry about it when they exclude you. Don't worry about that stuff. I'll take care of you. Verse 7, before she travailed, and we're talking about Israel now, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? And as soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. If you were to take this verse, these two verses, and go back to Isaiah... Uh, 61. If you remember when I took you to Isaiah 61, it started, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. And then right there in the middle of the first first line of the uh, verse 2, he says, To declare the favorable year of the Lord, then there's a semicolon, and the day of vengeance. And how Yeshua, in explaining his work of redemption, when he came, he only explained the first part. He didn't quote the second part. The second part has to do with the second coming. The first part has to do with the first We have the same thing here. In other words, the first part of the verse is talking about how the Messiah came forth. Uh, Behold, her pain came. She gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? The Messiah came forth into Israel, the land of Israel, born of a woman in the midst of the brethren. Raised up in the midst of the brethren. That's how the Messiah was given to us. He didn't fly down from heaven go to the temple, announced his arrival with thunder and lightning, he was among us. And a lot of people never imagined that that's how the Messiah would come. A lot of them thought he would come as a military leader, that he would rise up and he would wipe the enemies out. And so he obviously is the Messiah. But instead he came humbly, just like what Isaiah has been talking about. Which is greater to come humbly? But then, when you see the the next phrase in verse 8, Can a nation be brought forth all at once? Now, that doesn't apply to the first coming. But that certainly applies to the days we live in. As we're getting ready for the second coming. The nation of Israel, the modern nation of Israel, came forth in one day. And all of a sudden, as soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. And we've seen the regathering of many of the children of Israel, the house of Judah, back to the land of Israel as a result of the conflicts and the war of independence and all the conflicts in the Middle East. Even though Israel is a new nation, it's in the midst of conflicts. But that's what has brought forth her sons. Not only that are in the land there, but spiritually they're coming forth from all over the nation, all over the world. Today, we as Messianics, we see ourselves connected to Jerusalem, we see ourselves connected to the land of Israel, we see ourselves as descendants of Abraham, and we're emerging all at the same time that God has brought forth a nation in one day. And that's what it goes on to say that, uh, verse 9, shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I give delivery, shut the womb, says God? Be joyful with Jerusalem, and rejoice for her, all you who have loved her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations will over be like an overflowing stream. And you shall be nursed, and you shall be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees let me just say that this this thing that we see going on in this generation how the favor of god has come back to the land of israel how we have a modern state of israel how we have a messianic movement that began to emerge at the same time how they were being raised up from, smoked out of the woodwork of the nations, were all coming forth. That's describing the modern messianic movement. Do you remember me saying to you that years ago, when I studied this book, I suddenly saw the prophecies of what was supposed to be happening? And I started and I started looking for where are my brethren at? Because I feel I'm smoking up out of the woodwork. Where's the rest of them? It's not just me. It's got to be a whole bunch. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I know this, uh, I don't know if it can register with you, but in the early days, and we're going back 30, 35 years, in the early days of the Messianic movement, for me, it was a drop in the bucket compared to what it is today. It's a sea. It's worldwide now. It wasn't even in every major city or every state of the Union. It was, there was a little splattering in Israel and a couple of brethren here, and then there was some stuff in the United States, a couple of places. I remember the first survey we ever did, that we figured out there was about 80 Messianic congregations or groupings of people called themselves Messianic. That's, those are the days when I was... We're way past that. And it's emerging and still increasing. And it will continue to increase, I believe, in this final generation until the Lord is returning. Verse 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you shall see this, and your heart shall be glad, your bones shall flourish like the new grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be made known to his servants, but he shall be indignant toward his enemies. That last phrase is setting the stage that something else happens in these days. While God is gathering Israel and while he's gathering his people, and and raising up his servant servant, servants. There are the enemies of God are also being raised up. Wheat and tares. And he says, while he's looking with blessings toward us, he's going to be indignant toward his enemies. Verse fifteen For behold the Lord will come in fire His chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the center, who eat swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice, shall come to an end all together, declares the Lord. Any question about that's the day of the Lord? Is there any question with anyone? Let me go ahead and clear it up for you. This is about the day of the Lord. Okay? All right, verse 19. And I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Before you start, who are the survivors that are going to be sent? Those are the tribulation saints that come out of the great tribulation that are not subject to the day of the Lord. But they will come out in the days of the tribulation. You can read in Revelation chapter 7, talks all about them. And they are also called those who escaped, those who survived, and the elect. They are they're God's chosen people that come out for it escape, survive, and endure all the way to the end. And this is a verse where it says, I'll set a sign among them, we'll send survivors. And where are they coming from? From them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lad, Meshach, Rosh, Tubal, and Yavan. And to distant coastlands, they have neither heard my fame nor my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Now, when Isaiah wrote this, he said, You know, I don't want to limit the Lord on this one. I believe God has the power to deliver his servants even in lands and places I've never heard of. And that's what he's saying right there. And the answer is that is true because we happen to be in one of those places that Isaiah never heard of. And we have the testimony of what God is doing with us. Verse twenty, then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses in chariots in litters on mules and on camels to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Son of Israel bring their grain offering. In a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. Again, we're reestablishing the kingdom. He's going to bring them all from all the different nations. It's going to be like a grain offering, meaning there will be many that you can't even count like sands of the sea, grain of of a harvest. Uh, You can't even count them up, and they're going to be brought, and that's the final redemption, and that's the greater exodus that's described to us. Verse 22, final review, and he ties it together. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure Let me go back to what I was trying to tell you before. We're not going to the messianic kingdom and then after 100 years die. You're going to the messianic kingdom and you're going to live forever. And oh, by the way, what's getting ready to say is when you get in the kingdom, you're going to see every new moon that occurs in there and you're going to celebrate every Sabbath day that's in there. Because he says here, Uh, verse 23, And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all mankind. Now, how is it possible, if I'm in the Messianic kingdom, I'm going to be able to see that? If God has opened up hell where they're going to be in a, in a lake of fire. How is that possible that we'll know about that and we'll be walking around in the kingdom and we, you know, we can go and observe that somehow? Well, it's other prophets and other places in the scripture that defines that in the Messianic kingdom, a place that's south of Jerusalem, a place that is south of the Dead Sea, it's called the Valley of Topheh. There's going to be a pit. There'll be smoke coming up out of it. And down that pit, all the way to the center of the earth where the lake of fire is at, that's where they will have gone. And you and I will be able to walk by there. It'll be kind of a disgusting place. It won't be a pleasant place. And we'll see the smoke coming up from all of God's enemies still down there in the lake of fire. And it, it'll be part of the testimony in the Messianic Kingdom, just as Isaiah has said here uh, for us. Now, I don't like to end on such a negative note, but I want to end on a positive note. Especially the one that says, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. This is the message of Isaiah. And as I shared with you before, when I did this study before, it was life-changing to me. And it moved me from where I was at spiritually to reaching out to learn about the Torah, to learn about um, Israel again, and my, my part, my role as being a descendant of Abraham. And it's what motivated me to go searching for my believing brethren who believed in the Messianic movement that we have today to keep the commandments of the Lord. I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. That for those of you who are a part of the Messianic movement, that you'll have a grasp and an understanding that Isaiah spoke of us in these days. Isaiah, you know, looked at the big picture of what was going on with Israel of all the years. We've been disobedient of all of our enemies and what's going to be happening then. And that we'll get a perspective on how much the Lord really loves us and how we are part of an incredible, I mean literally incredible destiny that we have in the Lord uh, and as recipients of the promises that God made to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I pray that this has been a blessing to you and I want to encourage you in your most holy faith. Let's conclude this lesson with prayer. Father, thank you for the book of Isaiah. Thank you for the prophet Isaiah. And Lord, for all the lessons that were back there in the ancient of times, we know the same lessons apply to us today. We ask, Lord, that you'd use the words of Isaiah again in all of our hearts, that we might be the people who listen to you and not ignore you, that we might be the people that get excited about Jerusalem and your future kingdom. And that you'll look down upon us with favor and mercy, Lord. And don't hold us to the account of our many sins that we have. Forgive us of our sins and bring us into your kingdom. And establish your kingdom soon and very soon, we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shalom, everyone.